I wrestle Cause I'm sexy, sexy wrestling Sexy wrestling Hello, I'm Patrick W. Reed, and you're listening to the very first I Casually Enjoy a Wrestle podcast. It's a podcast without any real gimmicks, no hook, just the casual enjoyment of wrestling. We'll be talking about all things wrestling this time around, and we'll be looking at the Royal Rumble, because it's the middle of February, and I'm nothing if not timely. I'll be having a quick discussion on five-star wrestling, and about Pro Wrestling Eve as well, and probably the odd tangent here and there. In future episodes... Perhaps we'll get in the odd guest or a nominal co-host, but this time you're just going to have to put up with me rattling on about wrestling for however long it takes. Let's get the ball rolling by talking about the Royal Rumble. I'm going to gloss over the undercard for the most part, because aside from continuing an interminable Kevin Owens-Shane McMahon feud, in which Shane McMahon is coming across as the most insufferable authority figure in an industry and a specific promotion with a grand tradition of insufferable authority figures, yet somehow, I think, remaining the babyface... Nothing else really happened. I mean, we had tag team champions working double duty while also entering the Royal Rumble, which is a pet hate of mine. I don't like to see current champions entering the Rumble to earn a world title shot, because I think it devalues the belt they already hold, and it ignores the possibility of coming up with some intelligent or creative storytelling possibilities that are made available through having someone work double duty. And when the tag title match was occurring after the Rumble match itself, that was only more apparent. With that in mind, let's get on to the main talking point of the Royal Rumble, which for me was the fucking state of Seth Rollins' tights. This pre-made, high spots, reject, my first indie wrestling match, super cool flame motif. How is that gear for a guy who once upon a time was a viable WrestleMania main eventer? How did anyone in that company let him out there looking like he was wearing Harlem Heat's cast-offs? Oh yeah, and WWE put the Japanese lads over, so that's good to see. The important thing is that not only was it Shinsuke Nakamura winning the Royal Rumble, it was Shinsuke Nakamura looking like he belonged winning the Royal Rumble. He eliminated John Cena and Roman Reigns, who were set up as obstacles in his path to overcome... He was there positioned as the fan favourite against the established stars. That was a fantastic bit of storytelling for Philadelphia. Not only that, it really went a long way to undo the majority of his main roster run, which has been disappointing to say the least. Shinsuke Nakamura is, I'd say, the single most charismatic performer I've ever had the privilege of witnessing live in all the years I've been watching pro wrestling. To see him bogged down in horrible flyed lice racist promos against Jinder Mahal and rushed into title matches before they'd had the chance to introduce him to the audience and really just floating around and feuding with Dolph fucking Ziggler, it was a waste. It was the biggest waste of talent, arguably, in the entire promotion. But in one match, they managed to undo all of that, and he looked like a main event star. He looked like the star we know Shinsuke Nakamura can be. And that's exciting, very exciting, but it's also frustrating. As so much of this show was, as so much of the Royal Rumble was, it was frustrating because WWE know what they're doing, they know where they're going wrong. They know how to present someone like Roman Reigns to an audience like Philadelphia at the Royal Rumble. They know the best way to use John Cena in that capacity. And they know how to make someone look like a star. They just very rarely do it. 
and I'm not the kind of guy to complain about Roman Reigns being overpushed or anything like that, because I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think Roman Reigns deserves the spot that he's in, and I think that actually he loses too often. He's lost most of his pay-per-view matches and TV matches in the last year, which is not right for the flagship star, the figurehead of the company on his way into a WrestleMania main event. But anyway, back to the Rumble, back to Nakamura. We're getting a Wrestle Kingdom rematch between Shinsuke Nakamura and AJ Styles at WrestleMania for the WWE title. A couple of years ago, that would have seemed unthinkable. And that's really the story of where wrestling is going and has been going over the last couple of years. The rules, as we have long understood them, are changing. And almost nothing is unthinkable anymore. It's a very exciting time to be a wrestling fan because of that. We saw in one Royal Rumble match, Rey Mysterio mixing it up with Adam Cole. We saw Shinsuke Nakamura eliminate John Cena and Roman Reigns one after the other. These are, on paper, extraordinary moments. But they're just that. They're just moments. And WWE need the capability to capitalise on these moments. When they have a star-making performance on their hands, be it a match or a promo or a star-making moment, they need to actually make a star. And that's something that historically, at least in recent years, WWE have struggled with. Whether it was the John Cena US Title Open Challenge, where he had competitive matches with just about everyone. He made a lot of wrestlers look a million bucks. But then they went right back to mid-card purgatory just a week later. It didn't matter. Or short feuds between the likes of Samoa Joe and Brock Lesnar, where Joe looked like Lesnar's equal. He arguably looked like Lesnar's better. And maybe there are a lot of reasons why Samoa Joe isn't going to be a viable main eventer in WWE that we fans aren't privy to, that we just don't see. But it's frustrating as a fan, as a viewer of the WWE product, to see these decisions that seem utterly baffling, even sometimes counterproductive to us. Yet to see Shinsuke Nakamura win the Royal Rumble in the fashion that he did, because, let's face it, I was worried when the Men's Rumble was in the mid-card, I figured Nakamura was going to win, but I thought that Nakamura's win wouldn't be made to look significant, that it wouldn't feel important, because it wasn't the main event. But it really did feel important. It was the most enjoyable rumble I've seen in many years. The winner helped, sure, I mean, he's my boy, he's one of my favourites, I was glad to see him win. But the match made me glad to see him win, because the match built logically to that point, to the emotional climax of Nakamura's win, not just because he was my favourite. And that's something that they've struggled with. When Daniel Bryan was eliminated from a Royal Rumble that everyone wanted to see him win, my problem wasn't that Daniel Bryan didn't win. It was that he had lost his match earlier in the night and then was eliminated from the Rumble so unceremoniously that there was clearly no forward momentum for him, no plan. Winning or losing isn't everything, but if a wrestler loses, there should be some indication as to what comes next. Because none of us want our favourites to be afterthoughts, we want everything to happen for a reason. Speaking of afterthoughts, I can't talk about the Women's Royal Rumble match without talking about the build to the Women's Royal Rumble match. I know this is hardly a unique opinion, but there's nothing more irritating to me than a Stephanie McMahon promo about making history. Kayfabe's dead, we all know this, but that doesn't mean we need that hammered over our heads every week. We don't need to see people who five minutes earlier were blood rivals hugging it out in the ring while Stephanie McMahon tells them how hard they worked to deserve a main event match. 
in the Attitude Era, you didn't see Vince McMahon bring Steve Austin and The Rock to the ring and tell them that they were going to main event WrestleMania because they both worked so hard to earn it. And then shaking hands with both of them, having a big hug, and celebrating what an important moment in their careers it was. We don't expect men in wrestling to get main events purely because we've been told they put the effort in. We expect men to get main event matches because the story dictates that their match is important enough to headline the show. And we saw that with the women's division in NXT. Sasha Banks and Bayley weren't main eventing TakeOver because they were given a pat on the back and told how important it was that a woman should main event TakeOver. They were main eventing TakeOver because there was no other option. They made themselves invaluable. They made that match the most valued match on the card. They made that match important enough to headline. And it's stories. And above all, it's emotional investment that makes these matches important. It's not just WWE dictating their importance to us. And let's bear in mind, it's Stephanie McMahon that's telling us these things. Now I don't doubt that Stephanie McMahon is proud to see women reaching a higher position within the wrestling industry. I don't doubt that on some level she's invested in seeing women taken more seriously within wrestling and within WWE. But I can't help but question why Stephanie McMahon, who has held a position of power in WWE for the majority of her adult life, and a position of influence in WWE for more or less as long as she's been able to walk and talk, and who was a former head of creative for at least one brand, why it's taken until now to give us this so-called women's revolution. If this is a cause so close to Stephanie McMahon's heart, why were we still putting up with a women's division built around titillation while she was the one writing the show? And what happens next? So we've had a women's Royal Rumble. That's historic. That was a first time ever. And that's huge. That is very important. And you have to ask why it's taken this long. But at the same time, let's just take what we're given. A women's Royal Rumble just main evented the second biggest show of WWE's year. That is fantastic progress. It's taken too long, but it is fantastic. Was it the main event purely because of what happened afterwards? Yes, it was a main event because Ronda Rousey had to close the show. Was it a main event also because it was the first time ever? I think that plays into it as well. But then what happens next year? What happens for the next Women's Royal Rumble? The build can't be, this is historic, this is the first time ever, this is so important to all of you. It can't be that, they can't do that again. They need to start writing stories for the women. And they haven't shown any ability to do that. They haven't shown the commitment to be able to do that. Not only that, but a 30-woman Royal Rumble featured, what, all 17, 18 members of the full-time roster? First around, I guess you can get away with booking a 30-woman Rumble when you haven't got close to 30 women in your company. But what about next year? Are we going to bring in Tori Wilson, Kelly Kelly, and Vicky Guerrero for a second time around? Because there's a very limited pool of WWE-approved women from their history that can come in for that cameo spot. Short of a huge number of NXT call-ups, the number of that division, it's not likely to change unless WWE start giving these women more time. Because how often have we seen it already that the women are reduced to an eight-woman tag or a battle royal? Anything to cram them all into one match to save online with no rhyme or reason. But maybe I should focus more on the positives. The Women's Royal Rumble was a great match. The cameos, returning legends, they all performed fantastically. They all got their shit in, 
Every single one of them had a great little showcase moment, and everyone felt like they mattered. The downside to that is that it really showed up that some of the newer members of the WWE women's roster, they haven't really made an effort to explain who they are yet. Who is Sarah Logan? Who is Mandy Rose? We really don't know. And that only becomes more apparent when they're placed alongside someone as fleshed out as Lita, or Beth Phoenix, or Trish Stratus, who incidentally was an excellent choice for a position in the Rumble that I'd say the majority of the audience were expecting to be Ronda Rousey. There was no one else that could have been put in that spot that wouldn't have disappointed, that wouldn't have felt like an anticlimax. And I'm saying this as someone who, maybe this is a tad heretical, I'm not a fan of Trish Stratus. I never particularly was a fan of Trish Stratus. I'm never particularly a fan of Lita. They're women who were presented as and accepted as world-class wrestlers, but purely because they were such a step up from what came before them in WWE. And in Trish's case, the distance travelled from what she started out as in WWE, the improvement she showed. Maybe that's an unpopular opinion. Maybe plenty of people can tell me I'm wrong. But I never saw Lita as a great women's wrestler. A great women's role model? I've come to understand that. And I can completely grasp her importance to the female fan base and her importance historically. But I never saw her as a great wrestler. Lita was never a Manami Toyota. Lita was never a Mako Satamura. Lita was never an Alundra Blaze or a Bolnacano. But she was symptomatic of a tail end of the Attitude Era approach to professional wrestling, which is she did moves. She did a moonsault, she did a hurricane rana, sorry, she did head scissors. Ophidian will kill me if he kept me calling that a hurricane rana. But this was a time when women's wrestlers, they were catfighting. They were in bikini matches and bra and panties matches. To have a woman doing high-flying moves, high-impact moves, at a time when moves really were starting to matter, when moves were what the audience was starting to want, it was moves that made her stand out. I hope that made sense. And... If I wasn't a Lita fan before this match, I became a Lita fan during this match. Because to enter a WWE ring on pay-per-view, especially after the appalling way that WWE handled her retirement, to come out with a Time's Up hashtag and blazoned across her, and the names of blacklisted women like China written across her skin, that took guts, and that really meant something. Especially against the backdrop of a corporate-mandated women's revolution, in which WWE are looking for a pat on the back for how well they're treating women without accepting that they were a large part of the problem in the first place. They're wanting praise for putting out a fire they helped start. Lita standing up to that and in a small way exposing that hypocrisy, I loved that. That was a real highlight for me. Another highlight was Kyrie Sane. Kyrie was a standout in stardom and one of my personal favourites there. She was one of the best female wrestlers in the world, in my opinion. And at the Royal Rumble, she looked fucking great. And I'm glad she got a chance to show what she's capable of doing on a bigger platform. To a lot of people that will be seeing her for the very first time. And of course, we have to look at the winner. I've seen people suggest that Asuka shouldn't have won because it was predictable. But sometimes a result is predictable because it's the right decision. It was predictable that Luke Skywalker was going to destroy the Death Star. It's predictable that Mario is going to rescue Princess Peach. It's predictable that Hulk Hogan was going to beat Andre the Giant. Sometimes predictable is the right move. And it was absolutely the right decision for Asuka to win this match. Was she overshadowed by Ronda Rousey at the end of the show? 
You could make a very strong argument for that. But I think Asuka more than held her own there. She stared down Ronda Rousey. She didn't look scared. Charlotte and Alexa, from a confidence and a character standpoint, they maybe looked a little out of their depth during that closing segment. But the maturity and the confidence of Asuka when facing off with Ronda, that put me in mind of Steve Austin staring out Mike Tyson without blinking. This should be the moment that could legitimise Asuka as a star above all others, as someone who absolutely deserves the push that she's being given. And there was no one else in that match that would have warranted the push that she's been given. Now though, the question is, how do they make a women's title match at WrestleMania feel like more than just an afterthought? How do they make it feel big enough to deserve the accolade of being the first WrestleMania women's title match to be contested by the Women's Royal Rumble winner? And beyond that, with such a small roster, how do they keep something like Asuka's undefeated streak going without her just beating everybody? It's an exciting time. If you ask me, I would keep Asuka undefeated until next year's WrestleMania. I would keep Ronda Rousey undefeated, never pinned, never submitting, and have Ronda Rousey win next year's Royal Rumble. And that's a money match. And it would be a folly to give it away now. And that's why I have no problem with the idea of Rousey fighting Stephanie McMahon at WrestleMania this year. Because Stephanie can afford to take that loss without it hurting the women's division. But Ronda Rousey sticking around, and the appeal, the naughty of seeing Ronda Rousey in a WWE ring, that's going to die after one match. Beyond that, she needs a story. And what story is there bigger than an undefeated Asuka versus an undefeated Ronda Rousey at WrestleMania? Do they have the ability to pull that off? Will they have the ability to keep up an undefeated streak for that long? I don't know. I'm just saying what I would do. So we're coming off the back of the first Women's Royal Rumble. We're heading towards the first Women's Elimination Chamber. Another historic first-time match happening because someone said it basically just should happen. It's hard not to look at this in the context of how women have historically been presented and been treated within the wrestling industry and especially within WWE. And while it's an improvement to be where we're at now, not everyone's there yet. WWE, for the improvements they've made, they're not where they should be. They're not where we want them to be. And I understand the hypocrisy, if you like, of me saying this as a man, rather than handing over this platform, giving this voice to any number of female fans, any number of female performers, that can voice this far better than me. But I'll say this. One of my earliest memories of professional wrestling was the visual of Bol Nakano cranking an incomprehensible-looking submission hold on Alundra Blaze. And I'd never seen a human being that looked like Bol Nakano. The face paint, the sky-high blue hair, the heavy metal t-shirts, everything about her. She seemed like an extra from the Warriors, she looked like she should be an end boss in Streets of Rage. She didn't look like a real human being. And along with the Legion of Doom, they opened my eyes to professional wrestling as some sort of person I previously assumed only existed in comic books, cartoons, and video games, really walked among us. And I'd be lying if I was to say that it was Bolnacano that made me a wrestling fan, but it was an image that stuck with me. 
And while when my brother and I were inventing wrestling characters for us to portray while we were wrestling on top of our bunk bed, Bonacano was never in the forefront of my mind. If you must know, Duke the Dumpster Drozzy was. But while Duke Drozzy is long gone, the memory of Bonacano remained, and she became one of my all-time favourites. And forever she was my go-to. This is what women's wrestling can be. From the very beginning of my life as a fan of professional wrestling, women's wrestling was intrinsically a part of it. And for years, I could not understand why women's wrestling was not permitted to be that again. And I could talk about the misogyny and the sexism and the culture of abuse that led to women's wrestling being reduced to a sideshow, to titillation, to soft porn. But it's a depressing subject, and it's not my subject to discuss. We should be speaking to women about these problems in our industry. We should be listening to the women who are already speaking about it. Instead, I'm going to talk about someone who's been doing it right. I'm going to talk about Pro Wrestling Eve. Eve were a promotion that I had been notionally aware of for a few years. I understood that they'd done some work with Ice Ribbon, but otherwise they weren't really on my radar. But then I heard that they'd booked Manami Toyota for her first European appearance. But it was at such short notice for me that I couldn't afford flights to get from Jersey to London to go and see the now-retired Manami Toyota, and I missed out on that opportunity. Now, Eve, a couple of months later, announced that they'd booked one of my all-time favourites, Emi Sakura, and arguably the greatest wrestler in the world today, Mako Satomura, an actual goddess. I knew I wasn't going to miss that for the world. At the time, I thought seeing these two live was a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Putting aside that the British wrestling scene is so insane right now that in the space of the last year, I've seen Emi Sakura wrestle several more times. I've seen Mako Satomura wrestle something like 10 times, and I'll be seeing her again. Not only that, but I'm actually passing up the opportunity to see Satomura again in Fight Club Pro at Easter. That's how much things have changed, that once in a lifetime could become something I'm content to miss. But I digress. This was my first Eve show, last February. I was brought there by the drawer of Mako Satomura and Emi Sakura. I'd never watched an Eve show on DVD, watched nothing on YouTube. This was my first experience of Pro Wrestling Eve, my first experience of a lot of the performers they use, and my first time in the Resistance Gallery as a venue. What I saw, it blew me away. I saw wrestling as I'd always kind of wanted it to be. This was a show that took no shit, that felt like the most intimate of punk or metal gigs, like a show in a mosh pit. And I don't just mean that because it's such a cramped, sweaty, slightly run-down venue, but because, like in a pit, or at the best, small gigs, there becomes something of a bond, a camaraderie, where everyone there implicitly understands how things work, and they support each other. And I met people on that night that I never would have guessed I would still be speaking to a year later, that I would still consider friends, purely because they were stood near me while watching this show. Not only that, but I met, and I'm going to put these guys over as I have done God knows how many times, my friends must be sick of me putting over this couple and this promotion, but I got a chance to speak for the first time to Dan and Emily Reed 
the brains behind Pro Wrestling Eve. And I realized that what I loved about Eve, I loved about Dan and Emily. I realized that while I'd been to so many shows that didn't make you feel welcome, or made you feel like it was a privilege that they were granting you to allow you to sit in the crowd and watch their show for a couple of hours, at Eve in Resistance Gallery, you're part of the show. As much of a cliche as it is, you're part of a family. Pro Wrestling Eve does not work as it is without that camaraderie, without that atmosphere, without the crowd being 100% on board with what they do. And I said on that day that I loved what Dan and Emily were doing with Pro Wrestling Eve, that they were a company I was prepared to give my time and my money to, above and beyond anyone else in the UK. There was no promotion before them that would have been able to convince me to get on a plane to London and book a hotel to go to a show with no talent announced, let alone any matches. There was no promotion in the UK that would have convinced me to buy a season ticket for a year's worth of shows. Pro Wrestling Eve, they did that. And that's in part because every show has been fucking fantastic. The wrestling has been superb. But beyond that, it's a promotion that's made me feel welcome. That's made me feel part of what they do. Made me feel part of the show. Made everyone there feel part of the show. And isn't that what a wrestling show should be? They're a promotion that thanks you for coming that thanks the ring crew, that thanks all the support staff for helping out and the things that they do. And that might not sound like a lot, but it goes a long way. The next time you go to an indie wrestling show, pay attention. Are you thanked for coming? Are you thanked for your time? Are the crew thanked for their work, for their time? And earlier this month, a year after my first Eve show, I attended their most recent show, Kick Em In The Stereotypes. This is their second show of the year so far, and they're building towards Wrestle Queendom at York Hall this May, which will be the biggest women's wrestling show ever held in Europe. And I have to admit, I have a little trepidation around Wrestle Queendom for two reasons. One is that while I don't doubt that it'll be a superb show, I feel like there's a risk that they could lose the atmosphere in scaling up from Resistance Gallery to York Hall, and with that atmosphere, maybe lose a little of what makes Pro Wrestling Eve Pro Wrestling Eve. Also, when you're a promotion that's used to running monthly events, and you introduce your season finale, your WrestleMania, everything becomes about building to that show, in this case building to Wrestle Queendom. And that can lessen the significance of the monthly shows, of the smaller shows, because no longer do you have as much impetus to make every show special in its own right, to make every show feature these big matches and big moments, because maybe you have to hold something back. A match that a year ago, with no Wrestle Queendom to build to, could have been huge. Now there's the opportunity to cut that a little short and leave something hanging for the big show. But so far, while I admit I saw a little bit of a risk of that happening in the first half of January's show, those worries were pretty immediately assuaged by the second half. And Kick Em In The Stereotypes was a great show, and a great show that still built well to Wrestle Queendom. The balance was there. And I'm going to talk about a little about what I liked, and I'm going to do something I don't do often around Pro Wrestling Eve, and I'm going to talk a bit about what I disliked. 
Let's start with what I liked, and that was Viper versus Jorzelin. It was my first time seeing Jorzelin, as I'm sure it was for the majority of the people in that room, and she's fantastic. Jorzelin, she's a shark. That's the gimmick, and I love it. It's original, yet still simple. It makes sense, it's immediately understandable, and it's hilarious. And now Viper. Viper is someone I first saw on the World of Sport ITV pilot. I hate to say it, but I was disappointed. I was looking for a Bolnacano, I was looking for an Aja Kong. I saw that they had her as this monster heel, and that's what I was hoping for. And she didn't deliver for me. She seemed to lack intensity, she seemed to lack aggression. I didn't believe in her in the role, and I came away not a fan of Viper. But when I first saw her in Pro Wrestling Eve as a babyface, I realized she was a natural. She's an inherently likable person. And in this match, in any comedy match I've seen Viper in, that came to the fore. She was personable. So you were right there with Viper. You went through the same emotions she went through. And it was fun. For all the hard hitting and hardcore and sometimes kind of scary high spots that can go on at an Eve show, that can go on at Resistance Gallery. Above all, these shows are fun. And it's so infectious when you can see that the performers themselves are having fun. And seeing Viper, that's seeing WWE's May Young Classic performer Piper Niven win a match because she got sick of Jorzelin, the shark, biting her. Bit Jorzelin back, but her, her bite was venomous because, of course, she's a literal viper. That is fucking great. I can't speak highly enough of that finish or just how enjoyable that match was. And just how fun Viper is, when she's allowed to show her own personality and not just be retrofitted into the role that maybe too many wrestling promoters see that a quote-unquote big woman should fall into. Elsewhere on the show, they ran an angle that I was really happy to see building so logically and so naturally, and that's Charlie Morgan against Sammy Jane. Charlie Morgan wasn't my shout to win the She Won tournament. She wasn't even in my top three picks to win and then go on to main event Wrestle Kingdom. But when she was winning, I cheered so hard that I lost my voice. When she won, I might have almost cried. Because something Eve do well is that they make you emotionally invested in the wrestlers. I didn't mind that my pick hadn't won. I wasn't there rooting For a five-star match, I wasn't there wanting to chant, This is awesome. I was there rooting for Charlie Morgan to fucking win. Because how that tournament had been bucked made me want to see Charlie Morgan win. And now, I'd been a little worried with how Charlie was bucked on the last two shows. Whereas she was bucked in tag team matches where on paper, she didn't feel like one of the most important people in the match. But this time around, with her now booked up against Sammy Jane, and Sammy making it personal, it feels like a Wrestle Queendom feud. It feels like a match that should be headlining your call. And one of the elements that made that was Sammy Jane calling back to the move that broke Charlie Morgan's collarbone, and pointing out that since her injury, despite calling herself fearless, Charlie hasn't attempted that move. So there we have a story that's built around one move that can be teased, that can be alluded to, 
that plays off doubts around Charlie's fitness to compete after returning from injury. Plays off doubts around whether she can live up to her fearless nickname. It doesn't need a huge recap. It doesn't need me to sit you down with a PowerPoint presentation to explain the intricacies of how the story came to be. Shakara, I love you guys, but this story doesn't need years of blog posts, secret websites, scavenger hunts, and a working knowledge of Norse mythology to make sense of what's going on. This is Charlie Morgan, wants to win at all costs, but she's afraid to hit the move that hurt her. And I'm afraid to see her hit it. I'm expecting that she'll hit that move, the spear off the apron, on Sami Jane in the main event of Wrestle Kingdom. And if that leads to her winning, great, I'm going to be rooting for that. But I saw Charlie Morgan break her collarbone, and I don't want to see her take that risk again. When it looked like she was going to hit it on Sammy last weekend, I was watching through my fingers, I'm not even exaggerating. I'm terrified to see Charlie Morgan potentially get hurt again. That a match can grab me that viscerally, that emotionally, that I'm scared for the babyface's safety just as much as I'm rooting for her to pull out all the stops and get the win. That contradiction, those emotions fighting against each other, that is the story. And that is good fucking wrestling. And not only that, it was a good fucking match. I'd have to say the downside to it is that through no fault of their own, through the injury of Millie McKenzie, we ended up with a makeshift team of Sammy Jane and Kaylee Ray. And nothing was really done to explore that, because that's a reluctant team at best. These are not wrestlers we should see in Pro Wrestling Eve happily teaming up together, yet that never played into the story of the match. And perhaps it shouldn't have. Maybe it would be over-egging it and taking focus away from what else mattered in that match, but I did find it disappointing that there was maybe an unexplored avenue in the storytelling that that match left on the table. Other areas that, again, I'm going to have to say I find disappointing in the tiniest way. This is nitpicking to the nth degree. But we saw the continuation of a long-running angle between Jetta and Erin Angel. Now, Jetta, I'm going to have to say, is low-key, possibly my favourite wrestler in the UK right now. She's not necessarily flashy. She's not going to make that many highlight reels. She's not someone you're necessarily going to put front and centre on your poster. But she fundamentally gets it, in a way that so few do. She's an excellent promo, a superb performer. She plays her role to perfection. And I don't think I've seen her at an Eve show and not come away talking about her. Now, that's about as much being nice about Jetta as I'll allow time for. Now, the Erin Jetta angle culminated here with Erin walking out on Jetta. Erin as Jetta's only friend in the world essentially just being sick of her shit. And that's fine. But maybe, I, maybe I'm the one that's got my wires crossed here. But as far as I'm aware, this story started with Jetta pinning Eren in a match that meant Eren was contractually obliged to become Jetta's apprentice. Somewhere along the line, it seems like this angle was retconned to be about Jetta and Eren as unlikely friends. Erin as an angel on Jetta's shoulder trying to win her over, convince her she's a good person deep down, and Jetta being the exact opposite to Erin, trying to convince her to break the rules to start winning more matches. But the angle started out as something contractual, with Jetta having a kind of power over Erin. 
And that seems to have been lost. Maybe I missed a show. Maybe I missed a moment that explained this. But it seems to me that these two have been treated for months now. as just friends who wind each other up. But secretly, behind the scenes, when they're not out there in front of people, when Jetta's not trying to show off in front of her cooler friends, they do care about each other. But there seems to be a misstep. That's not how I saw the story develop. I don't know, maybe it is just that I've missed something. The other sort of criticism about this show came about for me after the match between Nina Samuels and the session goth Martina. After Martina failed to win any of her matches at She Won, she cut a promo saying that the session was over, that she had to get serious. Something had to change. Then she entered the Royal Rumble in January with only a cursory nod to that promo, and then was back this month with no acknowledgement of it, only to cut a very similar promo once the match was over, effectively announcing that she was leaving Pro Wrestling Eve because she wasn't taking it seriously, she wasn't winning, and that if she couldn't win, she didn't deserve to compete somewhere reserved for the best female wrestlers in the world. And that was an emotional moment. But it's a moment I had to question why it happened here. When we'd already had this moment, we'd already had the Sessions Over promo, it seemed like the angle was begun at She Won, shelved, and then restarted. And there was a video recorded for YouTube at She Won, in which Martina was approached by Emi Sakura, and Emmy offered to train Martina to help her start winning, get better, and get around slump that she'd been in. And that video hasn't been referenced in any of Martina's subsequent appearances. Now, I have a hunch, or a gut feeling, that Emmy Sakura may be due to appear on the next Eve show in March, and maybe that'll lead to Emmy and Martina teaming together, and us seeing a new side of Martina under the tutelage of Emmy Sakura. But if that is the case, why do the promo saying that Martina is leaving the promotion only to bring her back the very next show? It seems like an angle that has a lot of merit, but not sold on the execution. I'm prepared, I'm willing to see how it plays out, to see what happens, but so far I have to say I'm not convinced yet. Now, these are all very minor criticisms of what was an excellent show. So I want to talk about some things that were good. I want to talk about the opening match, and what that might mean moving forward. It was great to have Addy Starr back in the ring, and to see Aisha Ray back in Pro Wrestling Eve. But perhaps more importantly, to see Rear O'Reilly back in the ring, and what it means to have Rear O'Reilly back in the ring. I'm going to miss Rear O'Reilly as the matchmaker and the co-host. She offered a lot of personality. She brought a lot to the shows. I'm going to miss adorable Studio Ghibli outfits and Legend of Zelda dresses. I'm going to miss her cutting promos throughout the show. I'm going to miss Hero Riley as an authority figure, unafraid to stand up to a heel that gets too big for her boots. There are storytelling opportunities lost, but there are storytelling opportunities gained from Rhea returning to the ring. On paper, Rhea O'Reilly's revenge match against Sami Jane, the woman who put Rhea on the shelf for the better part of a year and took the championship that Rhea never lost, that's your Wrestle Kingdom main event. That's the biggest grudge match available to the promotion. And I worried that with Charlie Morgan winning She Won, what would be left for Rhea? I worried that the Charlie Morgan Sami Jane match couldn't be as big as Rhea O'Reilly versus Sami Jane could be. But at the same time, the Rhea feud with Sami couldn't just be ignored. And so far, it's handled perfectly. 
Rhea's comeback in January in the Rumble match as a surprise final entrant purely to get her hands on Sami Zayn was the emotional climax of that match, of that whole show. And then for Jamie Hayter and Charlie Evans to step in and eliminate Rhea O'Reilly was brilliant. We've been given the catharsis of revenge, of seeing our hero get our hands on our hated rival at long last, and then that's been taken away from us before we've had enough. That's pro wrestling storytelling at its best. And not only that, it's moved Rhea's impetus for revenge, if only temporarily, away from Sami Jane, but in a natural way. It doesn't feel wrong that Rhea would leave Sami Jane be for the time being to fight Charlie Evans and Jamie Hayter instead. And that's something that wrestling very often gets wrong. Because when a blood feud is enough to convince us that two wrestlers detest each other, that they want to tear each other apart, it can be difficult to suspend your disbelief to the point we believe that they'd wait until the next month when they're both in the same building booked for the same show, or wait until the right match to get their hands on each other. And when the feud's over, then just start acting like it never happened. Here, Rhea had a perfect reason to focus her revenge elsewhere. She still wants her revenge on Sammy, but when someone else has stepped in and taken that revenge from her and screwed her out of getting her championship back, yeah, you want to see Rhea go after those fuckers as well. So that's Pro Wrestling Eve. That's a promotion in the UK that's been getting wrestling right and been getting women's wrestling especially right. But now I want to take a little time to talk about a promotion that I feel is getting wrestling wrong. And not getting women's wrestling at all, as they have no women wrestling on their shows. That's Five Star Wrestling. Five Star Wrestling, at the time of me first recording this, have held two shows of a TV tour. They drew a generous estimate of six or seven hundred people to a 10,000 seater arena. 600 people is not a bad turnout for an indie show with very little brand recognition. 600 people's admirable. I would love to work in front of a crowd of 600 more often than not. But to draw 600 people when you have a national TV deal, when you have coverage in national and relevant local newspapers, when you clearly have an absurdly high budget, when your feature attraction is Rey Mysterio, not only Rey Mysterio, one of the biggest stars of the last 20 years, but Rey Mysterio in the same week that he had just entered the Royal Rumble and been one of the featured parts of that match on WWE pay-per-view, and you failed to capitalise. It's extraordinary to me that anyone working in wrestling professionally could promote it so badly with all of those tools available to them. People ask me why I care what Five Star Wrestling are doing. It's because I hold British wrestling to a high standard. I hold it to that standard because it's proved that it deserves to be held to a high standard. British wrestling can, and often does, count itself amongst the best in the world. And Five Star Wrestling is the biggest platform British wrestling has right now. And it's not the, Brit the British wrestling I love. It's not the British wrestling I know, it's not representative of what an awful lot of people are investing their time, their money, and their effort into. Now let's ignore, in the first instance, that this is a show that all the British wrestlers using one generic piece of entrance music, and what a way to make the local stars, the UK talent, look like they don't belong on the same stage, on the same level as ex-WWE stars. 
let's ignore the fact that Five Star is supposed to be a promotion with mass appeal on national television, booking the likes of Rey Mysterio to appeal to children, to appeal to families, to a casual audience, not just to the so-called hardcore or die-hard fans, but yet promotions catered solely around the die-hard fans, the likes of Progress, are consistently outdrawing Five Star without a television deal. That should tell us that the days of get British wrestling back on television at all costs are gone. Television is not the be-all and end-all, and nor should it be. Unless a television company is prepared to foot the bill for wrestling promotion, we live in a world of streaming services, of on-demand content. Why should we be aiming wrestling promotions to be subject to the whims of a TV network? When instead we can have the same mass audience appeal, perhaps more successfully, and have full control over how it's presented, and give the audience full control over how and when they want to watch it. I think that's how wrestling should be broadcast. And I have a pet theory that boom periods in wrestling don't happen just because one promoter found the next big star. They happen because of a change in presentation, and in production, or a change in technology. Whether it's the advent of television in America that first made wrestling viable national product, whether it was Vince McMahon first embracing the opportunities made available by national cable television and by pay-per-view, whether it was indie promotions like Ring of Honor and CZW in the early 2000s embracing the affordability of video recording equipment and distribution networks that had previously been affordable, or any number of indie promotions with their own on-demand service or streaming network available now. It's about embracing new media and new technologies. Beyond that, it's about building a brand identity. It's about making your fans fall in love with what you do, and it's making your fans trust you. Like I fell in love with Pro Wrestling Eve, like I fell in love with Chicago before then, like ECW fans did with ECW. If you watch ECW, look at the crowd. You don't see a lot of Sabu t-shirts, you don't see Sandman t-shirts, but you see a wave of ECW t-shirts. Because the brand was the draw. It was the brand itself they were loyal to, the brand itself they were emotionally invested in, not just in one wrestler. In the UK, look to progress, to a less extent to Fight Club Pro, and yes, to Pro Wrestling Eve. These are promotions where brand identity and brand loyalty is key to their success. It's not enough to book a Rey Mysterio and a Jack Swagger and say, we have Rey Mysterio, come and watch our show. Because yeah, I've seen Rey Mysterio on television, sure. But I want to know what Rey Mysterio is doing here. What is he doing for you? I want to know what Rey Mysterio means to five-star wrestling. And I don't even know what five-star wrestling means to five-star wrestling. I don't know what five-star wrestling represent. I don't know what they stand for. I have no idea of their brand identity. Big stars don't sell matches. Big stories sell matches. But most of all, emotional investment sells matches. Big stories, after all, are just one route to that emotional investment. And that's what's selling tickets. People aren't buying tickets for your show if you're not doing anything to make them care about your show. Now don't be wrong, I'm not someone who thinks that imports kill British wrestling. I have no problem with these guys booking Rey Mysterio. If you can afford to book Rey Mysterio, fucking hell, I'm not stopping you booking Rey Mysterio, go ahead. 
I have a problem with how they use Rey Mysterio. I have a problem with how they present Rey Mysterio in his own right. And I have a problem with how they present Rey Mysterio in relation to the UK talent. From a marketing perspective, they didn't capitalise on Rey Mysterio's Royal Rumble entry. Recently, Rey Mysterio appeared in a video package on a New Japan Pro Wrestling show, echoing the appearance of Chris Jericho via video late last year to build to his Wrestle Kingdom match with Kenny Omega, which was one of the most talked about moments in wrestling I've seen in many years. Mysterio echoed that when he appeared in New Japan and challenged Jushin Liger to a dream match, a match that hasn't happened anywhere in the world for more than 20 years. That is huge. People were talking about that. There was a buzz on social media around that match. Yet not one tweet to this day from Five Star Wrestling, not a few words to say everybody is talking about Rey Mysterio. WWE want him, New Japan want him, but we have him. And if you want to see Rey Mysterio, you don't have to go as far as a New Japan show. Come and see us at Plymouth Pavilions for Five Star Wrestling. Tickets on sale now. They didn't say that, and that is fundamentally a failure of promotion, to not capitalise on the inbuilt promotional opportunity available for people already talking about your talent. All you have to do is join in a conversation that's already happening, and they failed to do that. That's why people aren't going out of their way to watch their shows, because Five Star are failing to engage with them. They're not giving people a reason. They're not giving people an emotional investment. On that, why is Rey Mysterio special in Newcastle when Rey Mysterio is in Manchester the following week and in Plymouth the week after and wherever else these guys are working? Hear me out. Rey Mysterio is the kind of wrestler with enough name value, with enough clout, that when presented correctly, could draw fans from all over the country. People should be prepared to travel for the opportunity to see Rey Mysterio. He's a former WWE champion. He's one of the biggest stars in wrestling. But if I'm sat at home in Manchester, and Five Star have Rey Mysterio in Newcastle, do I get on a train to go and watch Rey Mysterio in Newcastle, when I know that in a week's time, He's going to be in Manchester. No, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait until I can see him closer to home, where it's more convenient for me. I'm the audience dictating to the promoter when I'm attending the show. It should be the other way around. The promoter should be telling me that I can't miss this, that I have to get on that train, that I have to attend that show. If you can't make a match appealing enough to justify traveling, if you remove the need or the appeal for people to travel to come and see you, you're only ever going to play to a local audience. And that means you're cutting your audience down immeasurably by selling yourself short, by failing to present the likes of Rey Mysterio in the way he deserves and in the way that would make you the most money. Present Rey Mysterio as a special attraction. Present him as someone who only competes in dream matches. And from there, construct stories that make all of his matches must-see. 
and people will come from far and wide to see that. But if you have him as just another member of your roster, that's never going to happen. And that brings me around to the other members of the roster, to the UK talent on these shows. The team of Big Grizzly and Dave Master jobbed to Carlito and Chris Masters. Why? I can understand the need to protect Rey Mysterio with DQ finishes. To an extent, I can understand protecting Jack Swagger. I can understand protecting John Morrison. But is there anybody out there who sees Chris Masters and Carlito as such a bulletproof draw that they need protecting at all costs? And I'm not saying that Chris Masters and Carlito should be jobbed out and losing every match. But when every other US import on the whole show is going over, surely there has to be someone losing to the local talent. Or else the UK wrestlers look second rate, and the promotion is already presenting them as second rate. The only performer on the show, Zach Gibson, who's speaking out about the way UK wrestlers are treated, is presented as a heel. This is a company running a UK versus US angle, where it's a UK wrestler saying that the US wrestlers are being given opportunities above and beyond the British talent on a UK show, and we're supposed to side with the Americans. We're encouraged to side with the guys on big money contracts, not the underdogs fighting for their spot. It's an obvious wrestling 101 story, and they're doing it wrong. On the other hand, we're listening to Zach Gibson saying that the UK wrestlers aren't being given the opportunities, and we're saying, I can see why. They're losing every match. The American guys are winning. They deserve the spot they're in. UK wrestlers are second rate. That's not an outcome UK promotion should want either. And I'm not saying we should go back to mid-90s jingoistic Butlins shows and trot out Rollable Rocco to open every show with the same I thought I heard them say British wrestling was dead, but we're showing the Yanks how it's done. Promo, only imagine that in Rollable Rocco's voice and not whatever that was. For 20 years, we've moved beyond that. People like the American wrestlers. They are fan favourites. But booked correctly... Five Star have the ability, they have the opportunity to make the British wrestlers look like they belong on the same level. Because to a new viewer, to the audience, they're all on television. To the audience, they're sharing an equal stage. It's up to Five Star to define what roles they're playing. So that when Rey Mysterio, when John Morrison, when Jack Swagger are all gone... People will still tune in to see Dave Mastiff. They'll tune in to see Zach Gibson. They'll tune in to see Jodie Fleisch. And not feel shortchanged when the WWE names aren't there. But Five Star aren't doing that. As it is, it feels like a vanity project. It feels like someone put them together to book all of their favourite WWE wrestlers. And the UK talent are already there because they need bodies to make up the numbers. British wrestlers and British wrestling deserves better. And British wrestling is being done better every weekend up and down the country. That's about all for this podcast. I hope you enjoyed those scattered rambling thoughts about just a few things going on in pro wrestling right now. And I hope you'll join me again sometime. 
I apologise if the audio quality was a little inconsistent here. Hopefully that will be sorted out in the future. Some of the elements of this podcast had to be re-recorded because the original recordings were were lost due to problems with running Audacity on what is, quite frankly, a knackered laptop that I've owned since God was a boy. And I've had to re-record them with an absolute bastard of a sore throat, which hasn't made anything easier. In any case, until next time, do all that fun stuff you do for podcasts. Like, rate, subscribe, follow us on Twitter, at CasuallyWrestle. And if you're listening to this in Jersey, then come down to Grainville School on Saturday the 3rd of March, where Channel Islands World Wrestling will be partnering with students from that school who are taking part in the Channel Island Student Business Challenge to help us put on CIWW School Brawl, the first CIWW show of the year, which I'll be proudly refereeing. And I'd love to see you all there. You can find out more by visiting the Channel Islands World Wrestling Facebook page or by visiting CIWWrestling.com, where you can also find links to assorted matches from CIWW's past, or you can buy some excellent merchandise, including the official I Casually Enjoy a Wrestle t-shirt. Until next time, when I hope you'll join me to casually enjoy another wrestle, thank you for listening. I wrestle, cause I'm sexy, sexy wrestling.